If you have a Bible tonight, uh, we may turn to a couple places, but we're going to draw our main thought from one verse in the book of Proverbs, chapter 16. The book of Proverbs, chapter 16. And um, tonight I'm going to talk to you about uh, my worst enemy. I'm going to talk to you tonight about my worst enemy. Um, I don't like to think of this as my worst enemy. But down deep in my heart, I know that it is. I'm rather ashamed to admit the degree to which I struggle with it. But I do. There have been times in my life where I thought that I would conquer it. That something I could do in my spiritual journey, that I could come to a place of spiritual maturity and conquer this, I'll call it demon. But when I think I have conquered it is often whenever I realize that it's got a hold of me. And I suppose I have resigned myself to some degree over the last couple of years to recognizing that this is one of the blessings that whenever I die, I get to escape. Um... I don't know if it comes with age. I'm not that old, as, as you all know. Um, but I hate that this is a part of me. And I would do anything I could to get rid of it. But I can't. The best that I can do is wrestle. Every day of my life, Wrestle with it. And if you've not figured out what it is yet, hopefully our scripture reading will tell you in just this one verse. Proverbs chapter 16, looking at verse 18, says this. Pride goeth before destruction, and an haughty spirit before the fall. We're going to read some other scriptures tonight here in just a few moments, but... Um, the title of our message tonight is Pride Will Destroy You. Pride Will Destroy You. I don't even know where to begin tonight, so I ask that you would pray for me this evening as, um, as the Lord may have me to try to bring this before you tonight. Pride comes in a lot of different forms. Pride adapts itself to the climate that it's in. Pride is very well camouflaged to where when you think it's gone, you then recognize that it's all over. Pride is a result of the fallen condition. Pride is 
I heard it said one time, pride is not, um, how's that phrase go? Pride is not thinking a lot of yourself, but thinking about yourself a lot. And tonight we're going to identify a couple aspects of pride. And we're going to look in the scriptures at some examples of people who were proud. But we're going to continue to come back to this touchstone. Because this touchstone tells us the end result, regardless of which avenue or path of pride that we take. In the end, pride always leads to destruction. I suppose that more people are in hell tonight because of pride than anything else. The world that we live in today encourages pride. They conflate it with aspects of biblical truths, but in the end... Often it is promoted to think highly of yourself. To allow your will to be the predominant chooser of what path that you take. That your dreams, your imaginations, your desires trump everything else. And that you ought to pursue whatever you want to pursue. But in the end, as we're going to explore the scriptures tonight, what we'll find is that all that is is a manifestation of pride. Because the presupposition behind you choosing your own path, whether it be in a lifelong goal, or whether it be in your own day-to-day activities, or as even Paul said, that we ought to allow even the thoughts of our minds to be brought subject to Christ. Even me thinking the things that I want to think on. And taking those paths and pursuing them wherever they might lead. And not allowing Christ to have governance of my mind. Is a form of pride. And so tonight we're going to look at three different scriptures that identify different shades of pride. And especially if you're lost tonight, the last one that we're going to bring before you, I feel greatly impressed to bring it before you because I think it's something that's often not realized within us. And so the one I want to begin with tonight is found in the book of 2 Corinthians. And though this one involves a saved man, we find that Paul the Apostle, the Bible said, had in this particular text in verses 1 through 6, He's getting to the end of this beautiful letter that he's written to this church that has repented and they're a spiritual church at this point and he's taught them all of these wonderful truths that are heavenly spiritual truths and he's coming to the end of it and they had doubted to some degree his apostleship. And so he is asserting that he is an apostle sent from God and in the first six verses he tells them that he had this experience that it was so heavenly, he doesn't know if he was in the body or not, and he doesn't quite fully understand how great or the, uh, everything there was to know about that experience, but he saw things in paradise that he could not even speak about. And then he tells us that as a result of that experience, 
God did something to him. Verse 7, it says this. Roll back up to verse 6. For though I would desire to glory, I shall not be a fool. For I will say the truth, but now I forbear, lest any man should think of me above that which he seeth me to be, or that he heareth of me. And lest I should be exalted above measure through the abundance of the revelations, there was given to me a thorn in the flesh, the messenger of Satan to buffet me, lest I should be exalted above measure. For this thing I besought the Lord thrice, that it might depart from me. And he said unto me, My grace is sufficient for thee, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. Most gladly, therefore, will I rather glory in my infirmities, that the power of Christ may rest upon me. The first form of pride that I want to talk about that I think Paul hints at here is a form of pride where we think well of ourselves. There is a form of pride we'll talk about here in a moment where we're striving for accomplishments and we're striving to do things. Or as Paul teaches us here, that people might think more highly of us than what they see of us. That we might leave an impression upon them. And it's very natural to the human spirit to desire to leave uh, an impression upon somebody that, that makes them think more highly than what they ought to think of us. That we kind of don't tell them the full story in hopes that the mystery of who we are might cause them to embellish in their minds how great that we really are. That perhaps you're an astute businessman. And so you, when you're discussing business, you want to leave just a little bit of mystery behind that so people might think more highly of you than really how successful you truly are. Perhaps your intelligence, you might make reference to things that you really don't know a whole lot about, but you know a little bit about. And by referencing those things, it leads people to a conclusion that, you know what? Wow, that person, they're really educated. They're very intelligent. And this certainly is a form of pride. But there's also a pride of us just thinking highly of ourselves. And Paul says here that in the verses 1 through 6, that God had allowed him to have this experience that was no doubt a, a heavenly experience that was uh, caused and allowed to be experienced because God took him there. And as a result of being lifted up in that heavenly place, when he was brought down to earth, uh, per se, he was tempted Because the Bible says that the reason why that God gave him this next thorn in the flesh was lest he should be exalted above measure. Lest he should think of himself as this great apostle, perhaps greater than any man since the time of Jesus Christ, that he might think highly of himself. And so God plagued him with a thorn in the flesh. Something was wrong in Paul's flesh. And there are many things that people guess about what that might be. Perhaps his eyesight was part of the problem. Some people think that he had a stammering lips, that he couldn't speak very well. Other people think he had to have letters written for him because he had some form of tremors or something like that. Regardless of what it might be, if we continue to, if we only focus on what it was and we don't focus on why God gave it to him, then we won't understand what Christ is trying to tell us here. The reason why he was given a thorn in the flesh is because even the Apostle Paul was subject to pride. And lest he be exalted in his own heart and in his own mind, above measure, God allowed him to experience something that was a thorn. Now, I love that. I love that it was a thorn. As opposed to what? 
something more significant than a thorn. You see, a thorn is nagging. It's irritating. It's something you, you, it can control your mind. It can subdue even a man's greatest energies because that little prick is on a nerve. And that nerve is so vital to your focus and ability to accomplish other things. That it's this thing that, yes, you can continue, but you cannot continue unimpeded by the knowledge that something is holding and restraining you. And so he had this thorn in the flesh. Now notice what this thorn did. Oh, it's so important to know what this thorn did. It caused him to run to the Lord. Don't you recognize tonight that there are many of us that have had certain disadvantages in life? All of us, perhaps different ones. Perhaps you've experienced some traumatic heartache at some point during your life. Perhaps you're plagued with some physical or mental disability where you cannot uh, uh, function to the highest of what you, uh, your expectations and your desires are. And you continue to look at this one thing in your life and you say, you know, my problem in life is that this is plaguing me. And if I could just shake this one thing... Perhaps you have an experience in life where something was very traumatic and you look back and you say, you know what? If that never would have happened in my life, then all the areas that I am being held back is due to that one thing. And have you ever considered for a moment that if you didn't have that one thing, that your heart would be exalted in pride and you would not feel the impulse to bow down before God and seek him? Here, Paul is telling us that the one thing that this thorn in the flesh did is it continuously, multiple times, brought him back to the foot of the cross, brought him back to the Lord, and he was saying, Lord, please uh, remove this struggle from me. This is something that I cannot go on bearing. And the Lord gave him quite the profound response, didn't he? In other words, I have placed that thorn there for a reason. So I'm going to leave it there. Because I know with that thorn, it's going to prompt you to continuously come back to me. It's going to prompt you not to be so elevated in your own assessment of yourself and your abilities and your talents. You know, that's one of the things that uh, people perhaps who look towards sports figures or they look to people who are actors that are good looking or, or singers, people who are naturally talented. And although the whole world from a carnal perspective reveres those things that seem so natural to them and the capabilities which after being developed are almost, it seems supernatural, the physical abilities that they have. Have you ever considered that possibly the very thing the world esteems as their strength is the very thing that might lead to their ultimate? ultimate demise that the fact that Michael Jordan can play basketball better than anybody can anyone deny that it has only left him to a form and a degree of arrogance almost unbeknownst to anybody in the world that people all day every day debate all around the barbershop as they say who the best is and somehow him and other of these men always come out as being the best And their life revolves around this esteem that men have for them. And yet, have you considered in the scheme of eternity how little that his capabilities on a basketball court will matter other than the fact that it might have been his absolute greatest stumbling block to ever finding God? It's because he was so good. 
And because the world lauded him with such praise that he was lifted up beyond measure as Paul said that his thorn prevented him from doing. Perhaps if he had just had a little debilitation in one of his fingers, perhaps if he had not been six foot six, he'd been just a little bit smaller. Perhaps if he had had an injury as a child, perhaps all these number of things could have, yes, caused his own abilities to have been uh, uh, somewhat sabotaged. But would it have lessened his pride to the degree that he would consider the gospel? I guess God only knows. Paul here is saying he's grateful for the infirmity God gave him because it caused his mind not to be lifted up beyond measure. Tonight, sometimes our biggest weakness is God's greatest form of grace. I had a roommate one time in college. I think I've shared this once before, but I had a roommate in college who was really, really smart. I remember when we took some upper-level math courses in high school, he wouldn't pay attention for three, four weeks. And then every day before we had a big test, he would, our, our, uh, our teacher would go through about 10 questions on the board of all the different types of problems that would be on the test. And every test question was somehow the, the, the formula or the way of doing that was on the board in that study form. And so he wouldn't pay attention for three or four weeks and he would have no idea walking into the class how those things were to be done. And yet in that 45 minutes, he would listen and he would watch and he would take notes. And then on the test, he'd get an A or an A minus or he'd always score very high. He was a very intelligent kid. He was great on the basketball court. And we roomed together our freshman year of college. And I had gotten to talking to him about the Lord. He wasn't a religious person at all. And over the course of a number of months, I'd gotten to talk to him about the Lord a number of times. And I got to share with him my experience and his need to be saved. And one day he said this. He said, you know, Brad, I know that I'm going for engineering and that really the end of this degree is to get a really big job and make a whole lot of money and have a lot of job security. But I recognize that I would rather be a poor man on the street and know God than to be the wealthiest man there could be and end up dying and going to hell. And certainly that's true, isn't it? I mean, when we really pan back life, and I'm not saying it's necessarily an either or, but very often the conditions of our hearts make it that way. Because very often the lifestyles that are pulling at us are ones that demand all of us Right, that's one of the horrible things about sports today is that if you're going to be involved at any level of sports today, guess what? You're either all in and your children are sold to the Little League or you can't really play or you're penalized when you try to get associated with it. Listen, Paul had an infirmity in the flesh And that was God's form of grace from having him be so exalted in his mind that perhaps he would consider himself even too good for God. There's another man in the Bible. I'm not going to read it, but I'll reference it tonight. Who illustrates a different form of pride, though very similar to this form of pride. His name was Nebuchadnezzar. And I love the story for Nebuchadnezzar because it shows the redemptive part of when God humbles people. You see, Nebuchadnezzar was a man that was literally on top. He was a king. 
And we read about Nebuchadnezzar in in Daniel chapter 2 and Daniel chapter 3 and Daniel chapter 4. And it begins, and it almost as though during those scriptures, it slowly reveals that, that Nebuchadnezzar is becoming more and more acquainted as time goes on with the God of Daniel. In Daniel chapter 2, he has this dream, and he threatens all the wise men of Israel. He's going to kill them unless they can tell him the dream and interpret it. Nobody can except for Daniel. So Daniel comes in, and he displays the power of Israel's God by telling him not only the interpretation of the dream, but even what the dream was in the first place. Daniel chapter 3 comes, and he's introduced to three of his friends, what we know as Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And God, through a miraculous display, allows them to be thrown into the fiery furnace. And then there's a fourth one who appears as though the Son of God. And he sees these four men in the fire and they come out and they're unheard. And that is a testimony that the God of these Hebrews is the living, true God. And we turn to Nebuchadnezzar, or excuse me, Daniel chapter 4. And, and then interestingly enough about Daniel chapter 4, I don't quite understand it, but it's written in the words of Nebuchadnezzar. So it's as though Nebuchadnezzar wrote this little autobiography and whoever the author of Daniel is takes it and pastes it into the book of Daniel. And so Nebuchadnezzar is speaking from a first-person perspective. And he's telling as the king this story. And let me say this. When you have time on your own to go read Daniel chapter 4, I want you to realize that the king of the most mighty nation on earth is trying to warn the entire world about the dangers of pride. And he's willing for his own story of being lifted up to be an example to all people. And he says in verse 1 and 2, all nations and all provinces all around the world, they, he wants them to know this story that they might be warned of the pride of their own heart. That they might come to know the God of Daniel. So he tells the story. And the story basically goes like this. Nebuchadnezzar had a dream. The dream was about this beautiful tree, and it grew, and it was, was huge. Animals came and nested under it, and there was fruit, and there were flowers upon the tree, and it was this beautiful, all-encompassing tree. And then one day it was chopped down, but the stump remained. He doesn't quite know what that means. Now, I'm not going to get into all of it, because he goes from in that dream He's telling it from an it, and then it switches pronouns to a personal pronoun, he. So there's obviously an understanding to some degree that it's a person. Daniel begins to interpret this dream. Belshazzar, Daniel, comes before him, and he's a little afraid. So for about an hour, he doesn't tell him what the meaning of the dream is. And then finally, Nebuchadnezzar said, no, I want you to come. Tell me the whole truth about what the dream means. And so Daniel says, well, you're the tree. And what's going to happen is you're going to get lifted up with pride. And then God is going to cut you down. And you're going to spend seven years acting like a beast of the field. And your fingernails are going to become like claws. And you're going to go eat the grass until you know that God is supreme. And so... Daniel admonishes him and says, so king, humble yourself right now. Well, the Bible tells us that one year passes, 12 months pass. And the king walks out on his porch. And he looks over 
his kingdom. And he begins to contemplate all that he had done and all that he accomplished. And he begins to accredit all of that accomplishment, all of the glory of that kingdom to himself. And the Bible says that before he could finish the sentence, a voice from heaven spoke. And judgment that Daniel had prophesied about was levied upon the king. And so for seven years, the king lost his mind. And it tells us that in another place, it tells us in the next chapter, in chapter 5, you know, in chapter 5, I believe it's his great-grandson. And this is a story some decades after this had taken place. And even in a story to his great-grandson, or at least his grandson, we don't quite know which, when, he, when Daniel is retelling this story, he says, you know that story about Nebuchadnezzar. You're familiar with what happened. And you know that his servants had to go out and feed him the, the, the grass of the ground. And so all of the kingdom became aware of the foolishness of your grandfather. And so for seven years, he was humbled. Not only before his servants, but eventually before the entire world, he was humbled. And then Nebuchadnezzar tells us this was going to happen until he knew that God was supreme. So verse 34 picks up in chapter 4. I'm going to read it to you. It says this, And at the end of days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted up mine eyes into heaven... And my understanding returned unto me, and I blessed the Most High, and I praised and honored him that liveth forever, whose dominion is an everlasting dominion, and his kingdom is from generation to generation, and all the inhabitants of the earth are reputed as nothing, and he doeth according to his will in the army of heaven, and among the inhabitants of the earth, and none can stay his hand or say unto him, What doest thou? At the, at the same time, my reason returned unto me. And for the glory of my kingdom, mine honor and brightness returned unto me. And my counselors and my lords sought unto me. And I was established in my kingdom. And excellent majesty was added unto me. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the king of heaven, all whose works are truth and his ways judgment. And those that walk in pride, he is able to abase. I want to bring something to your attention tonight. No matter how high a person gets, when they are determined to exalt themselves, God will abase them. This man desired honor and glory and esteem of people. And yet if we stop for a moment and just consider the foolishness of seeking the esteem of people who are, as the Bible says, but dust. We seek the applause. We seek the the lifting up, we see the well to be well spoken of, of that which is so futile, that which is so passing, that which is mortal, that which in the end is fading and is going to eventually fade away. The opinions of men in comparison to the opinion of God means absolutely nothing. And yet many people will see the, the, the uh, eternal destruction of their soul in an attempt to get the appraise of men. Very often there's a choice to be made. You'll either seek the applause of men or you'll seek the glory or the esteem of God. God humbled this man. A form of pride. 
that had God not intervened, I believe this is a, this is, I believe this is Nebuchadnezzar's testimony of when God saved him when he was abased. I'll give you one more example of a form of pride. And it's a personal one. It's not from the Bible. It's from my paternal grandfather. And I think it relates really well to our series of services this week. I'm not going to read his whole testimony. It's about a page and a half on this size sheet long. He was born in 1922. He was about 16, 18 years old, I believe it was. And we may read through it here tell us his age. But it's going to tell us that when he was approaching God to be saved, he had this conception of how it was going to be. He had his own will involved with how he wanted to be saved. You know, that's sort of strange to me. I don't remember whenever I was lost feeling that way. But I know I've heard many people's testimonies that, you know, I wanted to shout whenever God saved me. I wanted some thing to be going on. Or I wanted to be in private. I wanted to be all by myself because I didn't like people. And so if I could just be all by myself and God would save me there, that would satisfy me. But tonight I want you to know that a form of pride that human beings have that we must abandon before God will ever save us is to supplant our will with whatever God's will is for our lives. In other words, where we give up control of what we want and yield completely to what God wants. Don't you recognize tonight that that is the intention that God has from us from the very beginning until the very end of our lives? That we would let go control of what we think, what we do, how we live, where we live, who we marry. All of the things in our lives that is so natural for the prideful heart to govern. God desires us to abandon that will and yield it to him. That he might be the one to compel and to guide us and to instruct us on what we need to do, even beginning with how and where and when we need to seek after him. My grandfather desired, I'll go ahead and read it to you. This is in 1934. It says, I was on the altar many times during these meetings. It lasted for six weeks. And I don't know how I kept from being saved, but from that time until 1942, when I would hear the word, it would pierce my heart and I would go to the altar, but nothing happened. The last six months before I was saved, I would listen to radio preachers and they would tell me just how to be saved. I'd always heard about a no-so salvation. I prayed in the barn, the woods, the crabgrass patch, in bed, everywhere. I thought if I shouted, I would know that I was saved. I would get just as humble as I could. And then I would wait for the shouting to come. I know now that I was trying to get, get, excuse me, I was trying to get God to save me my way. The morning I was saved, I was plowing and had stopped to let the team rest. I got down between the plow handles. I knew that something had to be done. So I said, Lord, just any way you want to save me, do it. For I can't go on like this. Then it happened. I didn't shout, but the burden was gone. And I was as light as a feather. No one was there to tell me that I had been saved. I knew for myself about this no-so salvation. See, tonight, 
You may, as you come to revival services, I can remember myself coming and to revival services similar to this. and Certain things I wanted to transpire in a service. I was much of the opposite of the person of wanting to shout and do something like this. I, I didn't like attention to be focused upon me. And so if I could often stay back in my seat and pray and then avoid that embarrassing walk. This is just me speaking. I'm not saying you have to do this. I didn't avoid that embarrassing walk. Because to me, it seemed as though that was just a mile long and that everybody's eyes were piercing at me and that they were in their minds mocking and making fun. And I just recoiled at the notion that I would have to go up in front of people and their eyes would look at me and how I would feel and what I would think. And then the worst part was when I would get down and I would be bowed, I would pray. And then the conviction would let up and I'd be ready to get up. Very often I would just stay with my face buried in the floor because I just didn't want to face all the people around me. I was ashamed. I was embarrassed. I would never have called out loud, talked out loud. I hardly ever cried out loud because I was just ashamed. I remember seeing my older sister and she would wail. She'd just cry. I would just kind of to myself think, no way. No way could I ever call out to God like that. It's so shameful and embarrassing. And I had this, what I now recognize as this stubborn pride about the way I wanted things. Even to the point that I was willing to dictate to God how he was going to save me. I would often fear, feel fear at night. On my window there was this little bush. And this bush, would wind would blow and it would just tap on my window. And I'd get scared at night. It's tapping at my window and... I would say, God, this is where I want to get saved. This is it right here in my bed at private. I can cry and I can pray. And I was trying to dictate to God exactly how it was going to be done. The only thing I know about the morning that I got saved is not that I had agreed to be loud. It wasn't that I had agreed to come up front. It's that I didn't care at all anymore about any of it. It's what I said, I don't care what I must do. If God, you'll just save me. I just want to be saved. I don't think so. Coincidentally, I found myself in the very center of the altar, bowing, having lost all sight of what was going on and who was there. Little did I know that the majority of the church had already walked out of the back of the building and there was just a faithful few people gathered around and they were singing and they were doing what they normally did. And there I was calling out to God, completely immune to what was going on around me. And in those moments where I was praying and truly lost sight of this world and wanted God more than what I wanted, my will to be exerted, God saved me. Tonight, don't you recognize that even coming into this place, even feeling a conviction to seek after him, if you're going to dictate the terms of how it will be done, you will not be saved. You must yield entirely to what God wants. And that is so hard to do. I suppose that's why it's still my greatest enemy. Is because even in my life as a Christian, I have fenced off 
these things that I say, you know what, I'm going to give you this, this big field, God, and you can operate in this large field. But at the edges, I have it roped off. On the edges, I have these principles that I have put up in my mind. And I've become this principled person as to what's appropriate and what's right and what's godly and what's digni- what, what uh, allows for dignity. And yet the reality is God knows the boundaries of where I'm allowed to roam or where he'll lead me. What I need to do is just give him free reign of wherever he wants to go. Tonight, if you're lost this evening, I want you to know that there's a good chance that what is standing in your way is pride. Pride as to what you want. Not only now and here. Pride as to what you're willing to give up in your life in the future. That you're just determined, this is what I'm going to do with my life. And there are areas of your life that you've said, you know what, God, you can have it all but this. Or you've determined, Lord, these are the parameters in which I'll seek after you to find you. And as long as you have those boundaries of pride up, that will always prevent you from being saved. The Bible says pride comes before destruction. The book of James tells us this, that God resists the proud and he gives grace to the humble. You know when humility is worked is when a heart is crushed and broken. The Bible tells us that God draweth nigh to them that be of a broken heart and saveth such that be of a contrite or a crushed spirit. Oftentimes when our life, if you've ever experienced a time where your life is completely shattered and perhaps for a long time you've struggled with some secret sin, you've struggled with something that you want anybody to know about because of your pride and then all of a sudden that sin comes to begin to destroy your life and at that moment as you're watching the destruction of your life and you are completely broken and you are completely crushed and you don't know what to do and it causes you to go past those fences that you have fenced off and you run out and you say, I need help and I don't care who knows that I am dying, that I am struggling, that my ship is sinking, that I'm losing my family, that I'm losing my career, that I'm losing everything. I'll do whatever it takes to get it restored. Please help me. Oftentimes, a person must first be crushed before they will ever be willing to consider being humbled. And so what do we as saved people have to pray for our lost friends? Is it not that God would crush their spirits? Is it not for our children who are lost? Is it not my utmost desire for all of my children that God would crush them within? That he would shatter the condition of their heart and show them who and what they really are? That's what we need is we need to pray that God would crush because in that crushing is when a person is so often to yield their pride to God's lordship and say, Lord, I just want you. At the moment that I got saved at least, and at the moment you got saved, if you're here and you're saved tonight, and I'm going to close, in the very least at that moment of your life, you yielded everything to him. Brother Harvey has emphasized this week, he had to help you. He had to help you. Tonight, if you're lost, 
I want to advocate to you. I want to ask you this question. Is retaining your own will and your own desires worth the destruction that awaits you if you will not yield? Because let me tell you this. There's coming a day where your pride will be relinquished. You will yield. And you'll yield for all of eternity. I don't think that people in hell, I don't know this, have a lot of pride. Why? Because they're in a state of constant destruction. Each moment that passes, they're... The foolishness of their pride is ever before them. Tonight, you can either willingly yield your pride, humble yourself before the mighty hand of God that he might save you, or you might allow that that millstone to sink you to the bottom of God's destruction, where you will continue to sink and as Brother Reynolds told us last night in the dream that he had, that you'll, never, you'll continue to sink to the furthest abyss where nobody will ever hear the cries and the moans and the how much that you regret where your pride is taking you. Tonight, don't let that be the case. Won't you come and seek after the Lord this evening?